Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Amen. What a joy to sing those words together, and I hope it's the cry of your heart today that the Lord's will would be done, that settled resolve, the will of the Lord be done. We can say that with confidence because we know what our God is like. We've seen His love in the gospel, and it was that gospel resolve that kept the Apostle Paul moving forward, pressing on toward Jerusalem, even though he knew that potential chains and tribulation might face him. Often in the Christian life, we wonder, what's God's will for me? You've probably asked that question. I've asked it many times, right? What what does the Lord have next Uh, at various transition points in life or turning points in life? And uh, maybe just when you wake up in the morning, right? You get up and, boy, what, what does the Lord have for me today? What does he want me to do? And what shirt should I wear? Okay, well, maybe you haven't asked that question, but... Most of us, if we love the Lord, want to know, you know, what is His will and, and what does He want me to do today? This can become a, a weighty question in our lives. And, and yet, even though we want to know His will, it's often easy to get distracted from what His will really is. You see, when we think of God's will, we're often thinking in terms of that, you know, question mark, that cloudiness that's out there, you know, down the path a little ways. And if only God would give us clarity about what's coming ahead down the pike. We don't always have that clarity. And what we have to come back to over and over and over again is what we do know God's will for us is. We don't think of the scriptures this way, but the reality is this book, these written words here are God's will for us. It's written. Now I know it's not going to, you know, if I open these pages, I'm not going to, you know, like in the morning we could have this little fun experiment, you know, just kind of let your, let your Bible fall open right, and it's going to tell me, ah, oh, travel to Migdal. Okay, well, we'll see where that, you know, is Jeremiah 44, I don't know, we'll see, but I should go to Migdal today. No, it's not, you know, like this, where we're just kind of, you know, looking for these funny feelings or something magical with the scriptures, but, but as we study these words, our hearts are actually shaped. Our affections grow for the, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our desires and priorities align with his desires and priorities. And there actually are a whole lot of details and clarity about what the will of God is. A number of times in scripture we're told this is the will of God for you. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we're told that staying away from sexual immorality, that's God's will for me. Or, or we know commands like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So we do know what God's will is. And so often we spend our times wondering about the question marks of life, the, the cloudy future, and we get a little bit distracted from what we know God wants us to do. The Apostle Paul in Acts 21, where we encounter him again, has a bit of a unique scenario because he actually does have some specific instructions from God about the future. He knows that God wants him to go to Jerusalem. And this has come up a number of times in in the recent chapters 19 and 20. You remember back in chapter 20 that the Apostle Paul met with the pastors of the Ephesian church. And he was talking with them about what was coming 
And he said, I'm bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. You can, you can see that back in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Paul knew by the Holy Spirit's direction in his life that he was to go to Jerusalem. What's interesting is that he also knew that there were going to be chains and tribulations that awaited him. And that presented a temptation to maybe deter from the will of God, right? You can imagine some of those questions. Well, maybe, I, maybe, just, maybe just don't go to Jerusalem now. We just delay the trip a little bit until things settle down and maybe I can avoid these chains in Jerusalem. Or maybe there's another Jerusalem that the Spirit is talking about. Maybe it's not the Israel Jerusalem, but maybe some small town in Africa. Maybe that's the Jerusalem God's talking about. You know, who knows what thoughts were going through the Apostle Paul's mind as he wondered, boy, is this really God's will for me to go to Jerusalem and also to face persecution? Maybe even losing my life. His friends and family were wondering the same question. But what we see is Paul's firm resolve to do God's will whatever the cost. As Paul marches on towards Jerusalem, it just becomes clear he is resolved to do God's will, whatever the cost. And we'll notice as he faces some, you know, kind of roadblocks along the way, we could even say as strong, use a word as strong as temptations, even from those who cared about him. You know, they're not trying to be a problem, but temptations to deter from God's will. Paul is resolved and he presses on. And so we're going to track along with his story and the theme of our sermon today actually is the third point. You'll see it repeated. And it's one of those stories where as we see how Paul responds, it it leads to this truth. And so this kind of will be our conclusion, Uh, but you get a sneak peek at the end of the story uh, and what, what we learn from this story in Paul's life, to be resolved to do God's will, whatever the cost. So let's enter into the story in chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Here, Paul and his team encounter some believers on their journey. Here's a little map uh, to help you. Oh, let me, I'll go ahead and give you our point so you can write that down. The first thing we're going to see in Paul's life is that he is resolved to do God's will, even over the loving advice of other believers. They're going to advise him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul, I don't think he's like rude about it or anything, but he presses on. And we'll, we'll dig into the nuts and bolts of this and, and how we think about applying this in our lives, but it's interesting to me. They, they care about him, and they say, you know what, we know you're going to suffer when you go there, so don't go. And yet Paul continues on. Uh, so as we think about that, let's review kind of where they've been headed. Here's our map. Um, so remember, they were in Miletus up here. For, that was for the meeting between Paul and the pastors from the church at Ephesus. They traveled down uh, to meet with him. And verses 1 through 3 of chapter 21 kind of track along this travel scene, right? So he, they travel south to this island of Kos and then down to the island of Rhodes. Uh, they may have made a short stop here. They uh, they pass to the south of Cyprus. Uh, Luke makes a comment. It's just fun eyewitness details here. We saw Cyprus off to the left as we pass it, right? So we know they were kind of headed to the, the south of Cyprus here. And finally, they land in the region of Phoenicia in the city of Tyre. And so that orients you a little bit to what's going on here as they make these travels. Uh, and I, I just enjoy Luke's travel details there in verses 1 through 3. 
As we come to verse 4, notice something interesting. Luke says that they actually encountered disciples there. They find other believers there. And this is not a place that Paul had stopped to plant churches. So what's neat about that is that the, the church is growing beyond what the Apostle Paul is doing. Now, we could look back at Acts chapter 11, verse 19, where we're told that after Stephen's martyrdom, there was this persecution in Jerusalem that caused the disciples to be dispersed. And there it even mentions the region of Phoenicia, which, as you noticed, Tyre is one of the cities in that region. And so it could be that that's when these believers uh, moved to that area and established a church. But I just think it's fun that beyond Paul's ministry, the church is growing. This is God's work. And it's just a gentle reminder that no matter what God has in store for Paul, the work of the church will go forward because it's the work of Jesus Christ, right? Beyond Paul's doing, there's a church in Tyre. So they meet these disciples there. Verse 4, they stay there seven days. Probably the, the ship is unloading its cargo and they have to wait this amount of time. And it says at the end of verse 4, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. That, that phrase, through the Spirit, we need to understand accurately. I think what it means is that they had received some message from the Holy Spirit. Remember, at this time in the early church, the Holy Spirit was still giving prophecies like this. So they'd received some message from the Holy Spirit that Paul was going to face persecution in Jerusalem. Now, this is consistent with the story so far. In fact, in chapter 20, verse 23, they already testify the fact that every city Paul stopped at, the Holy Spirit was testifying that he was going to face persecution. And it's interesting. The testimony was not that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. The testimony is that he was going to face persecution when he went to Jerusalem. And so I think it's the same thing here. These believers at Tyre received the same message from the Holy Spirit as had been happening. You're going to face persecution. They make their own interpretation. So because of the Spirit's message, they tell Paul in verse 4, we don't think you should go. The Holy Spirit said you're going to face persecution when you go. We don't think you should go. But verse 5, the Apostle Paul comes to the end of those seven days and Luke testifies, we departed and we went on our way. They continued on. On. Somehow, in their relationship, these new believers they met, they enjoy some sweet fellowship. They give him this advice. Paul doesn't offend them by saying, you know, thank you for your loving opinion, but I have to keep going. Notice the care they show in verses 5 and 6. They all accompanied us, wives and children. Everybody in this little church went to see them off at the port. In fact, they even kneel down there on the shore and pray together at the end of verse 5. They take their leave, board the ship, and the, the people of Tyre return to their homes. So we see that the beautiful love in the early church here, they likely did not know any of each other. Maybe some of them had some connections, knew this guy, knew that guy, and some of these believers might have been from Jerusalem originally, so it's possible there once were some connections in the early church there, but, but by all regards, as far as we know, they didn't know each other, and yet already within a few days, they experienced this deep love and fellowship with one another. And as they share their loving advice, and again, the point is not to criticize them. If they know Paul's going to suffer at Jerusalem, it makes sense that they would say, don't go. Stay here with us or, or do something else, but don't go to this persecution. It's understandable that they would say that. At the same time, Paul maintains relationship, but presses on with what he knows the Lord has called him to do. And so we see a beautiful balance of Paul's resolve to do God's will, even when some other believers have encouraged him not 
to do it. Now, normally, it's good and right to listen carefully to the advice of other believers. That's important and right for us to do. In fact, it's really only in these scenarios when, when the advice of other believers actually goes against what God has said that we should take God's word even over the loving advice of what the believers has said. And I, and I want you to remember that that's the unique scenario here because God had told Paul to go to Jerusalem. So this is not just some flippant like, oh, you think what you want, I'm gonna do my own thing. No, he, this is a scenario where these believers are actually asking him to go against what God had said. Okay, now again, I, I think their hearts were, were, were good in it. it. It was motivated by love, right? But they're actually asking Paul to go against what God had said. And so Paul had to make the difficult choice of saying, no, I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to take God's word over your advice in this case. And again, most of the time, we can listen. It's usually a good thing. And as a general rule, I would encourage you to listen to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because in our church, in our present day, as the New Testament makes clear, this gift of prophecy, this kind of thing like that, was going to die out and cease Because now we have the Spirit in us and the completed Word of God. And so it is important in the church to listen to the the Spirit-filled advice of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that doesn't mean our brothers and sisters in Christ can't get it wrong. There might be times that in, in our compassion, our love for one another, or maybe some priorities or values that aren't fully aligned with God's values and priorities, we might give advice that doesn't align with God's will. And in those cases, we take God's will, God's word, over even the adv- loving advice of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, of course, we need the Spirit's discernment and wisdom to know when we ought to do this, when those times are that we might say, thank you for your input, but I'm confident what the Lord wants me to do. This verse of Scripture has been just a burden to me, and I think I need to obey Him in this way. Thank you for your input. We also need His help to overcome fear of man. I think of, you know, if I had been there uh, with these believers entire, you know, first impressions, they're meeting one another, they, they knew of Paul, they'd heard of him before, the temptation would have been in my own heart to really seek to impress these people and to, to build strong relationships and, you know, to take their counsel. But Paul's ready to not fear what they're going to think of him, not even fear losing the relationship with them, to say, ah, we're going to keep going. I'm going to do what the Lord has called me to do. And so we have to be careful that fear of man doesn't get in the way of being obedient to God. Ultimately, we stick to the word of God. The clearer God's command, the stronger our resolution should be to obey it over and over and over again. Of course, Paul had clear communication from God about pressing on to Jerusalem, and so he did. God's clear, specific word is always the right starting place. So we're not making decisions like this just based on our, oh, I feel like God is generally leading me to do this. No, that's, that's not the time we make these choices to, to, to say no to the advice of our brother and sister Christ. That's when we seek advice. But when we have clear commands, things we know God wants us to do, clear instructions, we stick to what he has said. We stick to what he has told us. So the question is, what does God want us to do, and and what does this look like in life? 
Well, let's think of some clear instructions. So here's just a made-up example that might help you to see how this plays out in life. One clear instruction we have from Scripture is that we are to be witnesses to the world that Jesus is the Savior. So consider Bob. Bob gets a new job, and it becomes clear that his new employer is a self-proclaimed atheist. He hears from the other employees that, uh, that this employer mistreats Christians. And so Bob begins to feel pressure to hide his faith. In fact, a few other Christians in the office have done just that. They've kept quiet about their faith in order to avoid conflict in the workplace. And they encouraged Bob to do the same. Just keep it under wraps and we can all get along fine. But when Bob's boss asks him directly about his faith, Bob replies that, I believe Jesus, God the Son, died for my sins and rose again, and I've given my life to him, to follow him and to encourage others to follow him. In a moment of temptation to listen to the other believers, Paul, or Bob comes back to what the Lord's clear command was, to stand up for his faith. This also applies in discernment issues. And there are many gray areas in life where it's good and right for us to seek the scriptures and to seek the counsel of those around us. In the end, we must resolve to do God's will, even if it means taking God's will over the loving advice of other believers. Well, let's continue on as Paul marches towards Jerusalem. We notice next in verses 7 through 12, we're going to see point number two. Paul was resolved to do God's will, even over the passionate pleas of those who didn't want to see him come to harm. Now, that's a long point, uh, but you get the idea of it. These are his dear friends, his companions. In fact, Luke uses that word in verse 8. We who were Paul's companions. They were his close friends. And they're actually weeping as they plead with him not to go to Jerusalem. And yet, Paul remains resolved to do God's will even over the passionate pleas of those who did not want to see him come to harm. Let's see how this unfolds beginning in verse 7. They finished their voyage from Tyre. They came to Ptolemais. So let's look at our map here and see the next few steps of their journey. So they kind of make their way down the coastline here, working down toward Jerusalem. And so there's the city of Tyre, the city of Acho, the city of Caesarea, and Antipatris. And we're going to end up landing in Caesarea for this next little section of our story. You see in verse 8, uh, they... Um, they come to Caesarea and they enter the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and they stayed with him. You can think back to Acts chapter 6, right? The, the first church there in Jerusalem, uh, and a need comes up in the church, and so they decide, hey, let's find some men who can meet this need, uh, and they elect what, you know, kind of are the prototype of our present-day deacons. Philip was one of those men. We encounter him again in Acts chapter 8. Remember the story of Philip uh, sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch as, as the man was uh, headed towards his home. It's this amazing story. Of God kind of took, the, took Philip there. The Holy Spirit took him there, and, and he shared the gospel, and the, the, the eunuch came to Christ, and then Philip vanished again. 
Well, now we find out where he went, right? He went to Caesarea, and he apparently settled there, Uh, and he has a family now. We read in verse 9 that Philip had four uh, unmarried, that's what that means, unmarried daughters who prophesied. So at this point in the early church, his daughters had the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 5, talks about this. Um, Not these women particularly, but that this was common at this time in the church, and so they're part of the ministry. Now, we, we don't actually know why Luke points that out, except that maybe they as well may have encouraged Paul not to go to Jerusalem or at least told him that you're going to face persecution as you head there. We, we just don't know exactly why that's pointed out. But then it gets really unique in verse 10. So they stay a number of days with Philip the evangelist, maybe you know, rehashing old stories or talking about how God had been at work in growing the church and just marveling at God's work. But then a man named Agabus arrives. He comes down from Judea, which they still uh, would have been north of at this point. And Judea was a a raised area. And so it's often said you come down from Judea like you're coming down a hill, uh, even though they're headed north to Caesarea as the map shows up there. So Agabus comes, and as we think about what Agabus does here, you just imagine this scene. It would have been really interesting. A- Agabus was a, a gift, had the gift of prophecy, again, which was active at this time, and he has a message for the Apostle Paul. He actually asks for Paul's belt. Okay, we, we don't know exactly what Paul's clothing was at the time, but he, but he had a belt. And so can, can you just imagine someone, you know, maybe visiting our church from another church and, and walking up to you and saying, hey, could I see your belt for a moment, Right? have a message for you from the Holy Spirit, and I, I just need your belt. Okay, all right, well, here you go. I mean, it's just a, it's a bit dramatic and strained. We wouldn't expect something like this, but, but I think it's meant to be a visual aid to what's coming for Paul, and it's strong and effective. You'll notice it, it leads to Paul's friends just, just weeping over what's coming for the Apostle Paul. So, so Agabus ends up taking Uh, Paul's belt, and it says that he actually binds his own hands and feet. So at this point, Agapus must have just gotten on the ground, right? And he's using the belts to kind of wrap it around himself. I don't even know all how this worked. Maybe he told somebody nearby to do it for him, but he's bound his hands and feet. So there he is, probably on the ground, giving the rest of this prophecy, and he says to him, the Holy Spirit has said, And whoever owns this belt will be bound in Jerusalem in this way and handed over to the Gentiles. Now, a prophecy like this means two things. Number one, he's going to be imprisoned, right? So that's what the the binding is referring to, referring to prison. And Paul actually already knew that part. He would be in chains and face persecution in Jerusalem. God had given that much information to Paul. I don't think he knew a whole lot more than that. And so when Agabus says, hand it over to the Greeks, I think is what he says there in, uh, no, he says Gentiles, excuse me, in verse 11. Hand it over to the Gentiles. What you have to remember about a phrase like this is that it's a lot like what happened to Jesus. The reason that Jews would hand somebody over to the Gentiles was really only if they wanted the death sentence. Everything else they handled on their own. There's really only one reason to give somebody over to Gentile control, and it was when they wanted the death sentence. You remember, this is what happened to Jesus. That's why they brought Jesus to Pilate. So when the Holy Spirit, through Agabus, uses a phrase like that, you can understand maybe a little more why there's this strong reaction from Paul's companions, because it reveals that 
The Jews in Jerusalem will be desiring to put Paul to death and are going to hand him over to the Gentiles with that in mind, that Paul would be put to death. Now, we know the rest of the story. You can uh, have a sigh of relief here. Paul doesn't die in Jerusalem. Uh, handed over to the the Gentiles, and eventually God uses that to take him to Rome. But you can understand their fear as they hear this prediction. And so you see their response in verse 12. They begin pleading with him, not only his companions, but the people of Caesarea. Luke himself is involved in this pleading with Paul, do not go up to Jerusalem. And so, this is a passionate plea from his friends. Now, verses 13 and 14, we're going to study in our third point, but you can take a, take a peek at those because I want you to, to know how Paul is going to respond. He says in verse 13, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? They're trying to draw him away. Now, again, I, I don't think their intent was to do wrong here. I don't think their intent was to oppose God on this I think we just see this overflow of love from them as they care so much for the Apostle Paul and they don't want to see him come to harm. And in many ways, this is good and natural and right for those who who love the Lord. It shouldn't be that we, we want to suffer for the Lord. That would be strange to desire that. Oswald Chambers put it this way, To choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. So the point is not that Paul just wants this suffering, or even that the other believers should want this suffering for him either. They shouldn't, of course. Why would we ever want suffering? And yet, There needs to be a commitment to do the will of God no matter what, a resolve to step forward into God's will, even if it may mean suffering. And so we see this beautiful resolve in the Apostle Paul's life. Sometimes when we are faced with hard things, those we love may may plead with us not to press on. That desire for comfort and safety is present in our own hearts as well. It, it, it's normal, it's right, listen to it, and don't, but don't let it deter you from what God has said. We need the Spirit's help here. We must rely on Him for wisdom to know when, uh, when to avoid unnecessary suffering. There's a place for that, but then there are other times when suffering may be God's will for us. We must stay focused on what the Lord wants, focused on His will, always asking that question, what does the Lord want me to do? As we think about this in Paul's life, we have to remember that this was obedience to a clear command. God had told him to go to Jerusalem. And we'll notice in verse 13 in the next point that Paul is willing to do anything for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a helpful directive. The name of Jesus was at stake here. And so this, again, this is not just light stuff that we would enter suffering for. This is the heaviest of things, the reputation of Christ and obedience to the very commands of God. So we're willing to suffer, but suffering isn't the command. The point is that we do what is right. We're always ready to please the Lord even if He calls us to suffer 
as we seek to please Him. And there are times in life when this means obeying the Lord even over the passionate pleas of those who, would det- uh, who don't want to see us come to harm. So again, we ask that question, what does God want you to do? Let's think of another practical example. Let's think of a made-up guy named Hank. Hank made a recent purchase on eBay, and the seller didn't hold up his end of the deal. Hank was out hundreds of dollars. Hank shared his story with a friend, and the friend encouraged Hank to send a harsh and threatening reply to the seller. This guy needs to know that he can't treat you this way. He needs to be afraid of what you might do, and you need to get your money back. But as Hank thought about it, he remembered that communication should always be good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, Ephesians 4.29. Hank decided not to follow his friend's advice. Instead, he would pursue a just resolution to the situation through the proper channels in such a way as to represent Christ well. See, the Word of God always trumps the advice of others. It always trumps the temptations of our hearts. We must keep coming back to the clear commands of Scripture. Resolve to do God's will, whatever the cost. This leads us to Paul's response in verses 13 and 14 and what becomes the theme of this sermon. Resolve to do God's will, whatever the cost. Here, as he's presented with this just passionate plea from his friends, they're actually weeping as they they encourage him, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't face the suffering that is to come. Paul remains resolved, whatever the cost. And we notice that God uses that to change their hearts as well. God uses Paul's testimony to bring his friends along as well, so they too come to a place where they're ready to say, the will of the Lord be done. This is where we need to be as believers, always submitted to the will of the Lord, whatever he has. In verse 13, we notice that Paul sort of questions their motives. What what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? It's almost as if he wonders whether they're trying to get him to disobey the Lord. It doesn't seem like that's their direct intention, but it is certainly the unintended result. Our minds might go to Jesus' interaction with Peter. Just after Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to head to Jerusalem where he'll be handed over to the Gentiles and he'll die on a cross and rise again. Remember, Peter steps forward and says, no, no, Lord, paraphrased. How does Jesus respond to him? He actually says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, it's not that Peter was actually Satan there, but the word Satan means adversary. It means that Peter was actually, in his you know, loving care for Jesus, actually now had taken a stance of opposition to the will of God in Jesus' life. Now, again, I think his motives were pure. He loved Jesus and didn't want to see him come to harm. But in that moment, Peter inadvertently ends up opposing the will of God and opposing Jesus. This is what happened with Paul's friends here as they, weeping, plead with him not to go. And Paul says, what are you doing? You're trying to, trying to break my heart? You're trying to de- deter me from what I know God wants me to do? He knows he must press on. 
The question is, why was Paul so resolved? There's a beautiful explanation of it in verse uh, 13. He says this, for I am ready, for I am ready, not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Based on that description that he'd be handed over to the Gentiles, I think Paul thought it was a real possibility that he could die in Jerusalem. I don't think he knew clearly what was going to happen, just that he was going to face imprisonment and suffering at the hands of the Gentiles. And so here he has prepared his heart to die for the name of Christ if that's what God is calling him to do. I love the perspective of Paul here. He's been doing his own work internally in his time with the Lord. As he keeps hearing this message from God, he knows he's bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And so as he hears this message, there's suffering is coming. Paul has been softening his own heart to God, just with open hands before the Lord, saying, Lord, if it's chains, even if it's death, I'm willing to go, that the name of Christ be magnified. I don't think Paul had written the book of Philippians yet at this point. It's actually during his imprisonment, which is about to come, that Paul writes that letter and a number of others, what we call sometimes the, the, the prison letters. And in Philippians, we see again Paul's heart, that he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But, but even just before that, some verses we sometimes skip, Paul talks about his desire being that the, the Lord Jesus would be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul had responded to the gospel in such a way that he was ready to die for the name of Jesus. And as God led in his life, Paul was really ready to step forward into the will of God, even if that meant his death. And I love that his friends quickly adapt. Are they sad? Sure, of course, they ought to be. But they're submitted. They're open-handed before the Lord, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Resolve to do God's will, whatever the cost. We see this example in history. A number of people throughout history had the opportunity to lay down their lives for the cause of Christ, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may know the story of Martin Luther. On April 14, 1521, Martin Luther was on his way to the Diet of Worms. That's not actually a meal of worms. That was a, rather a meeting. The emperor had forbidden the sale of all the reformers' books and ordered them to be seized. And Luther's life was in great danger. His devoted friend and confidant, George Spalatin, had sent word through a special messenger not to come to worms, lest he suffer the same fate as John Hughes. Luther, comforted by his fearful friend, saying, though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. Then he sent Spalatin the now famous message, Maybe you've heard this quote before. I shall go to worms, though there was as many devils as tiles on the roofs. On April 16th, Luther entered worms in a Saxon two-wheeled cart preceded by an imperial herald. And though it was the dinner hour, 2,000 people were present to observe his entrance. 
On the following day, at four o'clock, Luther stood before Charles, heir of a long line of Catholic sovereigns, of Maximilian the Romantic, of Ferdinand the Catholic, of Isabella the Orthodox, scion of the House of Habsburg, Lord of Austria, Burgundy, the Low Countries, Spain, and Naples. How's that for a title? So, it would have been an intimidating scene, to say the least. After an exchange between the Archbishop of Trier, Johann Eck, and Martin Luther, the Augustinian monk, overwhelmed by the immensity of what he was doing, he requested and received the night for prayer and consideration, and we can be sure that Luther really prayed that night. How frail and sensitive is the flesh of men, and the devil so powerful and active through his apostles and the wise of the world. O thou, my God, my God, help me against the reason and wisdom of all the world. Do this, thou must do it, thou alone. For this cause is not mine, but thine. For myself, I have no business here with these great lords of the world. Indeed, I too desire to enjoy days of peace and quiet and to be undisturbed. But thine, O Lord, is this cause, and it is righteous and of eternal importance. Stand by me, thou faithful, eternal God. I rely on no man. O God, stand by me in the name of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, who shall be my protector and defender, yea, my mighty fortress, through the might and strengthening of thy Holy Spirit." On April 18th, a larger hall was chosen, but was so crowded that scarcely any save the emperor could sit down, and finally came this famous dialogue. Eck said to Martin, Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith, instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of the martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church in which all our fathers believed until death and gave us as an inheritance, and which now we are forbidden by the Pope and Emperor to discuss, lest there be no end of debate. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without thorns, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther responds, since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without thorns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. The story was recorded by Kent Hughes in his commentary on the book of Acts and taken from many of Martin Luther's writings himself. We know that Martin Luther would go on to face death for what he had stood for, ready to die even to do the Lord's will. We sang together the rich words of the song, Whate'er my God ordains is right. And I love the way it moves from the, the, the tension we sometimes feel with God's will, but every stanza leaves us just resting and waiting in the will of God. Notice this transition in just a few of the phrases of this song. We already sang it together. 
Whate'er my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, but patiently I wait his day. Submitted to his timing. Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, and each morn anew sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Finally, the last stanza. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, Yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. There it is. The will of the Lord be done. As we think about this in our own lives, we, we turn most rapidly to the clear instructions of God those things that he has told us to do beyond a shadow of a doubt. It begins, of course, with a gospel response. This is what motivated Paul in his own life, and it may be that you're not aware of the gospel message for you, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that God saw you in your dead state while you were yet a sinner and chose to love you by sending his son Jesus to take your sins upon himself and to die in your place, paying for them in full, then rising from the grave, having conquered sin and death. That Savior then offers salvation to any who would trust in Him. Not only complete cleansing of every one of your sins for which He paid, but also complete and divine righteousness granted to you by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the truth of the gospel. Friend, would you have your death turned into life by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Would you be born again by trusting in Him? The gospel then leads to a gospel response, and we see this in Paul's life. Paul himself had responded to Jesus in this way, knowing that Jesus had died for him. He responded saying, yes, then I will live for the one who died for me and rose again. In fact, he wrote those words to the church at Corinth. And so a right response to the gospel is that I will live for Jesus. I am ready even to die for the name of Jesus because of what he did for me. That's the gospel response. The Apostle Paul calls this in Romans 12, 1 and 2, actually our reasonable service, our reasonable worship, that we would give our lives a living sacrifice to the one who died for us and rose again. We get squirmy at this at first because we, we wonder, well, what's God then going to allow in my life? What might I have to face for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the cause of Christ? The words of Psalm 131 have been helpful to me in that regard. Where the psalmist says this, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Leave the future to the sovereign God. 
quiet and calm your soul before him. Like a child in the arms of its mother, at rest and at peace, find rest for your soul in the arms of your good father. You know what he's like. He saw all of your sin and still sent a savior to pay for your sins. You know what he's like. And so rest in his sovereign control. Open your heart to him again and be submitted to whatever he may bring in your life, confident in his goodness. We say with sweet submission, the will of the Lord be done. Let's make this practical as we close. What then are we to do? What would God have me to do today? Lord, I'm ready. The will of the Lord be done, but now what? (laughs) What step do we take? We tend to want the answer to that question to be a few steps down the path, right? Five five years out, ten years out, or tomorrow. But a better question is today. Lord, what, what would you have me do today? And always a good starting place are those clear and strong commands from the Lord. You know what they are. Let's just walk through a couple of them together. First, to love God. Jesus calls that the greatest command of them all. So that's a great starting place for today. Are you obeying that command? Are you loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, or at least taking the next step? Sometimes an easy way to answer that question is, is there some category, some portion of my heart or my life where I'm not loving Him with everything? Something I'm holding back from Him, I'm keeping from Him. I can say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it's God's will for you to give that part of your heart over to Him again today, right now, to love Him again with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. This is God's will for you. Maybe it's the command to love others, the the second command. Again, sometimes it's easy to ask that question, well, is is there some category of my life where I'm not doing that? Do I clearly know as an area where I'm not doing that? Maybe there's somebody you're angry with. Maybe there's somebody that you are hating, either outwardly by your actions or inwardly in your attitude. I can tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, That is not God's will for you. So stop. Submit to the will of the Lord. Yield to Him again. Say in your hearts to the sovereign God, the will of the Lord be done, and choose to love that person that you'd been withholding from the Lord and disobeying what you know to be His will for you. Maybe it's one we mentioned earlier, to abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's will for you. Again, quite clear. Sometimes, again, it's helpful to ask that question, well, is there a category in my life when I'm not doing this? Again, I can tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's God's will for you to get rid of that thing in your life that disobeys that command to avoid and abstain from sexual immorality. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's those thoughts in your head. If you need help overcoming that sin, reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ. But step forward. Take that next step today in the will of God. Whatever the cost, resolve to do God's will. We could go on and on with God's commands to make disciples be filled with the Spirit. Again, these are large commands, but we find great help in asking the reverse. Well, is there somewhere in my life today that I'm not doing that? 
and the Lord will help us to see it. And then we come to that place, like Paul's friends did, where we open our hands again to him, we repent, we turn to him and say, okay, the will of the Lord be done. Whatever the cost, I'm ready, Lord, to step forward in your will because I know you are good, I know you are right, I know you are sovereign, and I trust you, and I'm resolved to do your will, whatever the cost. This also applies to the stuff of life that comes up along the way. We have the opportunity not only to have God's specific will written in his word, but we get to see his sovereign will from time to time as well. As we look back on the things that have happened in our lives, we we see what the hand of a sovereign God has allowed. We see sometimes his hand of blessing, and we look back on those times with, with fondness and gratitude, and we receive with submitted and thankful hearts the blessing of the Lord. We can also look back and maybe even into your present life right now and see times of suffering, maybe not directly from God's hand, but yes, allowed by a good and sovereign God. The Apostle Paul sure understood that condition. We could even look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and Paul's thorn in the flesh where three times he asked that God remove that suffering from his life and God responded, no, it's better for my glory and your good that this remain, my grace is sufficient for you. Maybe that you're in a place of suffering right now and need again to open your heart to the Lord. The will of the Lord be done. I know your grace is sufficient for me as I go through this trial. May you glorify and magnify the name of Christ by my life or by my death. This can also involve persecution. Now, in our country here, we don't face a whole lot of that, but believe me, the church today around the world is facing persecution. It's a real thing. And it may be that God has that in your life. Now, it's okay to find ways to avoid that, understand that, but first and foremost, we obey the will of God. And even if he brings persecution into our lives, we settle our hearts like a child in its mother's arms and say to the Father that we know is good, the will of the Lord be done. Resolve to do God's will, whatever the cost. Remember the gospel. We see what he's like in this gospel truth, and it's our help, and our power to soften our hearts to him again. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for Paul's resolve to walk in your will, whatever the cost, ready even to die for the name of Christ. Help us as a people to be ready to walk in your will, to be ready even to die for the cause of Christ. We do thank you and we do rejoice that we don't face persecution in this in this content, context currently in our culture. But if we ever do, if that's part of your plan for us, may we receive it with open hearts to you, ready to do your will, that the name of Christ might be magnified in our lives. We thank you for your love for us displayed in the gospel, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.